So um, tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about the Satipatthana Sutta. And I don't, I don't talk so much about suttas, or I, I might refer to them, but I don't usually speak right from them. So it might be a little different than something you've heard before. Um, just to give you a little context, the suttas is from the Middle-Length Discourses of the Buddha, a book called The Middle-Length Discourses of the Buddha. It's a Majjhima Nikaya. This is the, from the Pali Canon. This is like the official Buddhist Bible kind of stuff. And it, what it is, is there were stories about the Buddha and the Buddha's teachings that during his lifetime were remembered, were memorized by Ananda. And after the Buddha died, at the first meeting of all the enlightened, you know, arhats and monks and nuns who were, had been followers of the Buddha, Ananda recited all of these stories. And then they were taken up and they were memorized and they lived for 500 years in an oral tradition of people speaking them or chanting them, really. And then they were set down, I think, first on some kind of banana leaves or some kind of tree leaf in Sri Lanka about 500 years after the Buddha died. And, you know, now they come in book form like this. And there's all kinds of different stories, all kinds of teaching stories. There are all the teachings that the Buddha gave that Ananda could remember. And um, some people love the suttas, some people don't like the suttas. I've gone through different phases. At first I didn't read any of the suttas. And then when I was asked to teach and I was in teacher training, they told me I had to read the suttas. And I was a little resistant, and then I got really into the suttas, and I read a lot of suttas, and uh, I got to, I found my way into the suttas. I found my way into this form of studying the Dharma, which is reading the old text, reading what's been handed down to us, which is really now 2,500 years old. And this sutta in particular, the Satipatthana Sutta, is something that you've all been uh, um, influenced by. You've all been in, we've all been influenced by this text, whether you know it or not. That you came here tonight, even if it was your first time, and you heard me say, oh, stay with the body and the breathing, you're already hearing some of the Satipatthana Sutta some of the teaching in the sutta. And so I've been, I've been thinking a little about it. I'm sure, and I, I hadn't put the two together, but then when Jennifer said we have the intermediate class starting tomorrow, Will Kabat-Zinn will be going into the Satipatthana Sutta in more detail. So I, um, I was just coming, going to do an overview, but it kind of fits right in with the fact that the class is starting tomorrow, if you happen to be going to the class. So what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the sutta and give you a, a little introduction to the sutta, maybe perk your curiosity or clarify some things about um, the Satipatthana Sutta, if you've been thinking about it you know, a lot lately. It's been, you know, obsessing you or something, or you can't get it out of your mind. 
And the first place to start is with the name. What does it mean? What is Satipatthana? And actually it means a lot of different things. But the common way that it's translated that came down to me in the tradition that I've practiced in, the tradition that you're practicing in, is the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness. And it's a, a compound of the word sati, which means mindfulness or awareness, and upatana, satipatana, upatana. Excuse me, I'm not great with the Pali. This is a, this is a language that the Buddha taught in which is now a dead language. It's not a living language. Nobody speaks Pali. But this is the language that Ananda heard the Buddha teach in, that he recited the teachings, and then they, they lived um, for 500 years as people recited them, and then they got written down in this way. And so um, sati is mindfulness or awareness, upatana means placing near or a particular way of being present or attending to, attending to the moment with mindfulness. And it means really to be, or, to, or it's about being present. Satipatthana, it's about what it, a way to be present, a way to be, a way to be awake, a way to be present related to the present moment, attending with mindfulness or the presence of mindfulness. And it's a particular attitude of being aware, a state of being that's aware, that's awake. And so, just to maybe differentiate a little, you're already aware, right? You're already aware. You're, you wouldn't, if you weren't aware, you wouldn't know what I was saying or what you were feeling or that it was warm or cold, that's all, those are all already tell us that we're aware, right? We're aware of something. We're aware of being bored or interested or tired or energized or hot or cold or feeling good or feeling bad or, you know, whatever it might be. How do we know that? We know that because we're aware that we're hot or we're cold or we're bored or we're tired or we're irritated or we're happy or we're grumpy or we're... Or we even might even know we don't even know how we feel, but then we're aware of that. Satipatthana is a little different. It's not simply knowing what we're aware of, but it's the state of mind, it's the state of being that is knows what's happening, but also knows that it knows what's happening. It's aware of what's happening. Most of the time we're not aware that we're aware of something. We're not aware of the awareness of being hot or cold. We just know we're hot or cold, period. And the word, the translation, four foundations of mindfulness, that's one translation. There's many different translations. One is, uh, another translation, Thich Nhat Hanh likes to use the translation, the four establishments of mindfulness. That, one, mindful, that Satipatthana is to establish mindfulness. Or I was looking here, I was on the web today looking up different translations 
there was a fellow who said it called it I don't have it here I think it was the four risings of mindfulness or the the rousing of mindfulness and um, which was another way it could be translated and then one of my teachers Tanisaro Bhikkhu he translates it as the four frames of reference the four frames of reference which is I like that translation a lot these days um, and so what it points to is there's a state of mind that we're, we're being given here. We're being given this possibility. This is one of the gifts from the Buddha, the four foundations of mindfulness, or the four frames of reference, this teaching, this satipatthana, this training of the heart and mind to begin to wake up and see in a slightly different way than we're used to seeing, to know what's happening in a slightly different way than we ordinarily know what's happening. To be aware of, awake to what's happening without being totally identified with it, without pushing it away or dissociating from it in any way, shape or form. But to be mindful of it, what, what's talked about as mindfulness. Could easily be called heartfulness or bodyfulness because it really includes all three. It's a totality of being present and knowing what's happening as it's happening. And so right now, you can start to be mindful. You don't have to wait. You don't have to shut your eyes uh, and, and get in a meditative you know, stance. But you can start to be aware of what's happening even as you're listening to me, even as you're hearing me to start to feel your body. So and let, me, let me give a little more context. If you don't know the Satipatthana Suttas, the four frames of reference or the four foundations of mindfulness are the body, feelings, mind, and what's called dharmas or, or sometimes mind objects, dharmas. And these are four different areas that the Buddha highlighted and said, and, and it was a way to discriminate different areas of human experience, which really, if you have those four, you have all of human experience. It's one way to divide up human experience to begin to pay attention to it. <clears throat> and so let me read you a little so you get a sense of what a sutta sounds like and then what's, what's in it here. So it begins, thus have I heard, thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country at a town of the Kurus named Kamasandama. There he addressed the bhikkhus, thus, the bhikkhus means practitioners. He said, bhikkhus, you know, like he said, hello, or welcome, or greeting. He says, bhikkhus, and they said, venerable sir, they replied, and the blessed one said this, bhikkhus, there is a direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu, a practitioner, abides contemplating the body as a body, 
ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He, um, one abides contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware, mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. One abides contemplating mind as mind, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. One abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects or dharmas as dharmas, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. So this is the Buddha's proclamation of mindfulness. This is his offering or his gift. And if you've practiced mindfulness in any way, shape, or form, it comes from these words. Now we've translated these words a lot. You, you can hear the language is different, it's archaic, it's a repetitive form, and of course it's repetitive because that's when you didn't have anything written down, that's how memorization worked. You would repeat it often, you would chant it again and again so that it stuck. <clears throat> um, and actually, even when you read a sutta these days like this, generally a lot of the repeti repetition has been taken out to make it more readable. Otherwise, they, they would go on and on. So let's go back to the beginning and just see, well, what did, what did he say there? What, what did he say in this, you know, three little paragraphs? So the first sentence is an important sentence. Thus have I heard. Thus have I heard connects us immediately with the human experience of the Dharma. Because when we hear the words, thus have I heard, we're hearing Ananda's voice. Because it was Ananda who heard that, that this sutta, and he's the one who remembered it, and he said, thus have I heard. So you, we hear something very important because it's continuing right now, because someday you might say, thus have I heard, right? Oh, I heard Eugene talking about mindfulness last week. It's the same voice that this is how the teachings have done, come down. Oh, I heard my teacher, you know, Joseph Goldstein, you know, 25 years ago, teaching about mindfulness. It's the same transmission from the Buddha, from Ananda, and on down. And now it comes, how is it coming to you right now? In words. And actually it's coming from the Buddha's words through Ananda. That the Dharma comes person to person. It always comes people to people. That's the way the Dharma has lived for the past 25 or 2600 years. And then they give you a little context. Where was he? What country? Because he roamed the northern Indian countryside, northern India and Nepal, walking all over, teaching. And each time they, they start one of the stories, Ananda would say, oh, here's where we were. We were in San Francisco at the Unitarian Church, and thus have I heard. And then, you know, Ananda tells how it began. The Buddha said bhikkhus, and they said venerable sir, instead of good evening or welcome. And, you know, and then, and then here's what the Buddha said. This is the direct path for the purification of beings. 
for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So this is a little bit the Buddha in his mode of being quite direct and quite um, the lion's roar it's called. When he had something to say he said it and he said it directly. And it's, it's very beautiful what he says here, what he's offering to us, what his, his gift to us. He says, here is a practice, the four foundations of mindfulness. Here is a way to begin to contemplate reality that is for the, for the purification of beings. Now purification has a certain kind of um, well, negative valence generally in our society or in our contemporary culture. Um, one way we could think about what, what's meant when the Buddha says the purification of beings is that it's for the uh, clarification of beings. That it's for, how does the heart and mind get clarified? How, uh, how does all the overlay, all the imprints, all the um, uh, conditioning, when that's released, what's here? And what's here would be considered purified. It's not about being good or being nice or doing the right thing. That's not, sometimes people have that flavor, if you're pure, then you're kind of a goody-goody. That, that's not the kind of purification that's being spoken of here. It's about a purification of the heart and mind so that the heart and mind can realize its true nature, can realize reality, can see clearly how things are, who we are, what we are, what's actually happening. For the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation and the disappearance and pain and grief, I mean, he's offering a lot here, don't you think? I mean, you know, no more sorrow, no more grief, no more lamentation, no more pain, the disappearance for the attainment of the true way for the realization of Nibbana. Nibbana is also Nirvana. And this was before the rock band Nirvana. This was like, this was where the rock band came from, the name. <laughs> I, I saw my daughter uh, this weekend. I was in New York, and she's my daughter's a grown woman at this point and uh, living with her boyfriend. And sometimes she'll say to me, she said, I'll, I'll do something. She'll say, Oh, you're just like my boyfriend. And I'm like, I, I think it's the other way around. <laughs> <You know? laughs> You know, I was here first. <laughs> so, so this is the nirvana, nirvana that was here first. <laughs> and then the Buddha goes on to say a little more. He says, what are the four? What are the four foundations? What are these four frames of reference that I'm pointing to? Contemplating, and here I'll give you another translation. I have too many pieces of paper here. I see, I want this one. He says, 
there is the case where the practitioner remains focused on the body in and of itself. Remains focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. You hear a slightly different translation. One remains focused on the feelings in the feelings in and of themselves, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. One remains focused on the mind in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. One remains focused on mental qualities in and of themselves, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. These are the four foundations of mindfulness. And so these four areas are highlighted for us or discriminated out. And within them, as I said, they include the totality of human experience. And remember in Buddhism, if there's any confusion about this at all, heart and mind are the same word. So all of the heart qualities are actually, when he talks about mind and mental qualities, they're all there. Feelings are not actually emotions in Buddhism. When he says be mindful of feeling, he's talking about the nature of experience having a different feeling tone depending on the experience. That any experience can be pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And that we can start to be mindful. You can be mindful of when I ring the bell some people hear the bell and they think, oh, it's just, I love the bell. I hear the bell, I relax. It's the bell is pleasant. Some people hear the bell and they're like, oh, it's such a tinny bell. I don't like that bell. Why don't they get a good bell? It's such a <laughs> tiny little bell. And then a lot of people, I ring the bell and they're like, oh, what was I doing? You know, they don't even notice the bell. They just realize the meditation's over or something. Any, and, and this is something, if you haven't heard this teaching about feelings or feeling tone, it's called Vedna in, in Pali. Every moment has a feeling tone to it. Every experience has a feeling tone that's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And the reason, the, and when we start to be mindful of this, it can be very helpful because there's a tendency to grasp on to pleasant feeling tone experience, push away unpleasant feeling tone, and not pay attention or be awake to more neutral feeling tone. You could notice the feeling tone of the siren is a different feeling tone often than the bell for people. Or if you're feeling a little warm in the room, that, that's a certain, there's a feeling tone. It's not, there's the experience of the warmth. And then some people might, who might, maybe your tendency is to run cold. It gets warm, oh, this feels nice to me. And so it's pleasant. And some people who tend to run warm and it gets a little stuffy in the room, they're like, oh, this is unpleasant. I'm gonna start taking off my clothes. And, why don't they turn on the ventilation system? And, and then a number of people won't even notice 
that it might be warm, but it, that, they don't even notice. It's kind of neutral. It's a neutral feeling tone. And it's a very important place to pay attention in addition to the body, in addition to the mind, in addition to the mental qualities or the dharmas, the way things are. Now, um, this beginning of the sutta. So he begins the sutta and then he goes through the four foundations. And I'm not going to do a lot of that tonight. I'll go do a little. But what I want to do is go right to the end. Let's just cut right to the chase. Huh? So pretend you, you know how to practice the four foundations perfectly. Here's where he goes, the conclusion. He says, bhikkhus, practitioners, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected for them. Either final knowledge here and now. I have my own feeling tone thing about the, about the sirens. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, non-return. And, then, and what that means, those are two fruits. Either one is totally free, or one is very, very free, but there's a little bit left you're still going to work on. Because when he says non-return, he means non-returner, and it's the third stage of enlightenment. A non-returner is the third stage. It's a very highly, uh, very deeply free stage of being. It's not complete freedom, though. And then he goes on, he says, let alone seven years, practitioners, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for six years, and then, of course, there's a repetition, and he says it for five years, and he repeats again for four years, three years, two years, one year. One of two fruits could be expected for them. Either final knowledge here and now, which means complete freedom, or if there's a trace of clinging left, non-returner. Let alone one year, bhikkhus, if one should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven months or for six months, or for five months, or four months, or three, or two, or one month, or half a month, one of two fruits could be expected for them. Let alone half a month, bhikkhus. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for them. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, non-return. So it was with this reference to the, excuse me, so it was with reference to this that it was said, bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. And so you hear now, it's a bookends. It's the same proclamation now is also a promise. He says, if you do this practice, here's what will happen. And it may take seven years, or it could take as little as seven days. They used to, when I was first on retreat, they used to tell this story. They didn't read it from the suttas. They would tell this story, and they would say, if you practice um, 
continuously for seven days, you'll get enlightened. And of course, it would be very inspiring. And if you're on a long retreat, you know, for a few weeks or a few months, seven days is like, okay, I'm going to start now. And I'm not going to miss a beat. And it, it brings a lot of inspiration, a lot of uh, 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 fire for practice to see, okay, could I do this? Could I do it for seven days? I couldn't do it personally. I did pretty good for about seven minutes. <laughs> I got a little enlightened. <laughs> but, but it does, when you, when you start to think that way, you think it's even possible, then you start thinking, well, how continuous can I be? How present can I be? How awake can I be? Not only can I be, how awake can I stay? Oh, and then what happened? Where did I go? Okay, I'll start again now, right? Because it was only 20 minutes ago. I still got seven more days. Right? So this is the Buddha's offering to us. This is his promise, his proclamation of the four foundations of mindfulness. And then he, but there's, um, there's a couple little pieces in here that I think are helpful to begin to contemplate. One is, you know, this is the, the four foundations of mindfulness. But you notice he's, when he says, what are the four? He says, someone abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful. Ardent, fully aware, and mindful. So what's this, what are these other two? What does that mean, ardent, fully aware, and mindful? Mindfulness is actually not a... Um, Mindfulness is a quality of mindfulness. How's that for kind of bad way to speak, but you can get away with it in Zen. <laughs> mindfulness is a quality of mindfulness. And, and really, what I, the better way to say it is mindfulness is a quality of satipatthana. That for satipatthana to be uh, alive, for that presence of mind, that is available to you right now, that's even part of if you're bored or if you're confused by the talk, if you start to be aware of that and aware of the state of heart and mind that's here, you're being mindful. If you feel the whole sense of what the aliveness is revealing right now, then you're being mindful. What he says is that it's not just being mindful, but it includes being fully aware, it includes being ardent. Or in, let's see, there's some other translation. Here he said, ardent, alert, and mindful. Sometimes they say diligent. Uh, um, dil, dil, diligent, um, in, uh, clearly comprehending, and mindful. These are little different translations. What it's pointing to is mindfulness is a cluster of, of factors that come together that are included in this state of heart and mind that we're calling mindfulness or satipatthana. And the different qualities, I'll speak to the qualities a little bit. The diligent or committed or ardent quality has to do with being uh, intent, having a certain intention and wholeheartedness 
about what we're doing, about being present. That there has to be a heart quality for mindfulness to function. There has to be some, uh, and the word I like is passion, because if you look up ardent in the dictionary, it means characterized by intense feeling, by emotion, by devotion, passionate, fervent, uh, vehement, zealous, fierce. And there has to be a quality of that for meditation to succeed. Doesn't mean that's the overwhelming quality when we meditate, but it's the part of the ground of what brings us to meditation and allows us to continue to practice. There's some love, there's some devotion, there's some fire or some burning for freedom and to see what happens if we stay present. And what, why, why don't we stay present? What is it that keeps taking us into the past and future when it's totally a fantasy? And what happens if we start to really let that ardency live in us, make it more conscious? And so ardency means that there's a, a kind of wholeheartedness, but it doesn't mean straining or sweating or all the time or being uncomfortable or tense but it's really the, the sustained application of energy in a balanced way. The sustained application of being present in a balanced way. And then that comes together with what's called um, uh, a full awareness or full knowing or alertness, they're calling it here. Uh, ardent fully aware or ardent alert and mindful. And the alertness, uh, the word is sampajana, sampajana, fully aware. Um, it's the awareness of what's happening in the moment. Are you aware now of what's happening in the moment? Or are you, are you more involved in whatever, are you more uh, um, um, taken by what's happening? Are you more in reaction to what's happening? One of the reasons the feeling tone is helpful is because often we're taken by a pleasurable experience and it's harder to be aware that it's happening. Or we're taken by an, an unpleasant experience and we just want it to go away. We're not aware of it. We don't get present in it, in the experience, whether, whether pleasant or unpleasant. And so sampajanya means being aware of what you're doing in the movements of body and the movements of mind because we want to see, well, what's actually happening here? What's actually happening now? And then, of course, sati, mindful. Anybody know what it, sati actually translates as? The word that's mostly it's translated as mindfulness. Do you know what it's translated? Awareness. Awareness. Pardon? Sweet? No. It's translated, really the root of the word has to do with remembering. It's remembering, it has to do with um, recollecting or remembering um, and what it means is that if sati is happening, one of the ways it's understood, if sati is present, then memory can function because we're actually here, we know what's happening. 
and we're, we're remembering the present moment. We're not remembering the past. We're remembering the present. We're like, if, if we've lost a limb and it's sewn back on, it's remembered, it becomes whole, that there's a wholeness in the present moment because we're remembering it, we're recollecting it, we're one with it. And so there's this sense of oneness and then the fully comprehending or fully aware of it, and then the ardency to stay present moment by moment by moment. And it's a radical practice to do that, as you, as you can all see just from trying to sit for 40 minutes and stay present. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not a simple thing. It's a simple thing. It's not an easy thing. It's quite difficult. But even a few moments of mindfulness have a tremendous amount of benefit, are very satisfying to the heart and soul, even when things are difficult. I mean, I, I just, I did a very quick trip to New York. Like, I flew out Thursday and I flew back today. And I'm totally jet-lagged. And I was really, I got here. That's why I didn't give any instruction. I just thought, I just need to sit because I just felt like I hadn't even landed here yet in my body. And so what was I sitting with? I was sitting with a lot of uncomfortable feelings, images, uh, uh, sense impressions. New York's intense. And, and uh, I was in Times Square last night at about 11 o'clock. You know what Times Square is like at 11 o'clock on Saturday night? There are a lot of intense sense impressions happening. And they're not all pleasant, I assure you. I mean, there's all these people are, are walking around in cars and honking and cops. And I can't imagine what these people are doing there. I mean, I had a reason to be there. But, <laughs> but it was like, <laughs> and it was just, and actually I was there, my daughter was in a place. So I was there two nights in a row. She was like, oh my God. It's a, it's, the play was fine, but getting out into Times Square afterwards, it's very intense. And so I was sitting here tonight, and really all I was doing was uh, letting all that energetic, somatic, emotional, mental, whatever it is, all that uh, energy, all those impressions actually just kind of settle and, and let my consciousness actually get really aligned with my body, get here. And it was very uncomfortable, but very pleasant. How's <laughs> that for a contradiction? Because it was, it was like, you know, my, the first reaction is, no, I just want to, you know, go to sleep, or I just want to uh, eat something sweet, or I just want to watch the 49ers game that's on tape at home, or I, well, something like that. But, but really, but staying present, I could feel my nervous system start to come back into some kind of sense of composure, of collectedness, of relaxation, of presence. And so even though it was very uncomfortable, which it was, it was also very satisfying. And I could have sat a little longer, but even by the end, it was like, I, and, I could, and then at times these visions of, you know, Times Square would come, and I could see they were just releasing, they were just releasing. There hadn't been enough time in New York to, 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 for it to come and go even. And so 
mindfulness is this capacity that we develop, that we learn, it's a skill that we learn about how to be present in a way so reality can start to reveal its nature, some of its qualities that even though we know them, we start to know them on a more, in a more immediate way. It's, first of all, reality begins to reveal its impermanent nature. It's impermanent nature. That when we begin to sit with this sense of being mindful, alert, fully aware, we begin to see that nothing stays. Everything moves. Everything changes. That this is part of the nature of reality. It's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just, it's just how things are. We start to see if we try to hold on to anything, or if we try to push away anything, if we try to hold on to anything pleasurable or push away anything that's unpleasant, it's suffering, that it's a certain kind of suffering. And that there's a freedom in not trying to grasp or push away. And that that freedom starts to show its luminosity, show its purity to us, not because we make it happen, but because it's the Dharma revealing itself through the four foundations of mindfulness. And part of what <clears throat> the reality that it shows us is also the characteristic that's called the not-self or non-self or selfless characteristic of reality. That not only are things impermanent, but the idea that there's a permanent self here starts to reveal itself as an idea, as a belief, as something we imagine. And that is a kind of consensual imagined reality. And that even that starts to let go. And that this purity or this radiance or this luminosity of heart and mind that is our birthright, that we would say is our true nature, begins to show itself. And I'll say one more thing about Satipatthana. This is from a, a really great book. If you're really interested, you want to read a book, this whole book's about Satipatthana. It's by Analayo Bhikkhu. It's quite a good book. And, you know, it's kind of uh, academic, uh, some too, but he's also a practitioner. There's also, like, so then the Buddha starts and he starts to teach about the body. The first teaching about the body is to be mindful of the breathing, or to be mindful of the posture, or be mindful of the movements of body or be mindful of the uh, energies of body, which he talks about as the elements of earth, air, fire, and water. These are all different ways to contemplate the body. And after each contemplation, there's what's called the refrain or the insight. And the insight's about, oh, this is the way to contemplate the body in the body as it arises and passes and externally or internally. and or simply, simply establishing that to, uh, mindfulness to the extent necessary for the bare knowledge of that there is a body. And then he adds the most important line in this refrain or this insight. He says, and one abides independent 
not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a practitioner abides contemplating the body as a body. And this is, this is really the key to what he's offering us, that there's a way to practice, there's a way to abide, uh, not clinging to anything in this world. And not clinging is a, is a euphemism for nibbana, for freedom, the peace, the bliss, the joy of release, of not clinging to anything in this world. And the refrain, after every teaching, every meditative um, uh, activity that he offers us from breathing and postures, movement and contemplating the anatomical parts and the elements and uh, the, and the um, temporality of the body and then the feelings or the feeling tone and then after the, he goes into the mind and then he talks about the dhammas or, or the um, mental factors, the hindrances, the aggregates, the sense um, uh, doors, the awakening, the noble, four noble truths. After each one, that refrain is there. Whatever, whatever mindfulness contemplation you're doing, it's in the service of this, not clinging to anything in this world. So let's sit for a minute, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.